You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, let me invite you to turn with me and your copy of God's Word back to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. That's Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. You remember last Sunday, we uh, heard the State of the Church sermon looking back on the past year and looking forward some at all the great things that God has done, and now we're back in Galatians. And this is a great Sunday for us to be back in Galatians right after Thanksgiving. I hope that we all were able to enjoy some time of gratitude and joy and food and celebration uh, over this past week. And now we come uh, to this Sunday morning. And actually, today we have a unique opportunity, uh, just the way that our service is designed and focused, to really focus in on the grace of God. We have had an opportunity already to sing about God's grace. We're going to hear in this text in Galatians 4 even more about God's grace to help us understand the the role of grace in our lives. We're going to celebrate The Lord's Supper is a picture of God's grace, and then we're even going to spend a brief time in our service praying as a congregation, as we do on the last Sunday of the month, uh, because of God's grace. So this is all of grace this morning, and we're looking forward to the time that we're going to spend now, even though abbreviated just briefly in the Word of God. This morning, we're coming back to the book of Galatians, and uh, this sermon and this text, as we'll see, is really about two covenants. You may remember over the past weeks, as we've been working our way sort of passage by passage through the book of Galatians, that we have been learning to draw a clear distinction between the law of God, his expectations and commandments, and the gospel of God, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And we, in particular, have been reminded of the importance of finding those two voices of the Bible in their proper place in our lives, that the gospel throughout the scriptures is always superior to the law, that while the law brings us the bad news of our sin and teaches us a way to live in gratitude to God for what he's done, it's ultimately the gospel that is our hope. But as we've been noticing, both from this book of the Bible but, and also our own lives, that's not always the way that we live. There's something about what sin has done in our hearts where the law of God is written that has perverted the work of the law, that draws us back again and again to some kind of twisted desire for self-righteousness for self-justification, as if we could maybe impress God with our law-keeping. And therefore, in some of our daily experiences, we find ourselves reverting back again to hoping in our law-keeping, in our obedience, in our checking certain Christian things off the list. And when that happens, it crowds out the good and right place of the gospel as our ultimate hope and the ultimate source of our joy and happiness in Christ. And so we're continuing this morning in Galatians 4, verses 21 through 31, to draw that distinction even more clearly as we see this morning. It happens, Paul tells us about two covenants, uh, two families. I want you to imagine this as we begin. Imagine a small, quaint town where two families live side by side for generations. One family are the Lawtons. 
And they meticulously follow a set of strict rules that were handed down through the ages of this neighborhood by the original founder, of course. And the head of the Lawton family, Mr. Lawton, is known for this. He's known for his kind of stern demeanor, always ensuring that every family member adheres to the established laws of the town. But next door is another family. This family is known as the Graces. They're known for their joy and their laughter, and they have something that the Lawtons don't have. They have a deep sense of joyful freedom. And the head of their home, Mr. Grace, embraces with his family a different way of life, a different way of seeing life, seeing the neighborhood, seeing the founder. And it is a way that rests their hope and their joy not on the rules of the neighborhood, but resting upon the promise of the founder of the neighborhood. Their lives are not strictly bound by keeping of rules, but rather they are filled with gladness and grace because of that promise. And as the years have passed, the Lawtons and the Graces have coexisted, but there is always this underlying tension between them. The Lawtons bound by the strict code, often looking across the street at a mixture with a mixture of curiosity and skepticism at the seemingly carefree graces. What is going on in this neighborhood? What's going on in this neighborhood is the same thing that's going on in my heart and in your heart every single day. All the time, these two voices of Scripture are speaking out in our hearts. And so we want to better understand what I know Paul wants us to understand, what I know the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, because here it is written for us in such clear terms, especially here in Galatians chapter 4. So let's notice three Three truths in the brief time that we have before we celebrate the Lord's Supper would be a wonderful way for us to prepare our hearts and minds to think about what Jesus has done for us in, in bigger and better and brighter and clearer ways. And here's the first truth. The first truth that Paul wants to deliver to us, as he did to the Galatians, is that the Bible envisions two families, the Lawtons and the Graces. And Paul speaks very clearly to his readers in this passage, which honestly is, is one of my favorite passages in all of Paul's writing. And I think it's one of my favorites because he speaks so clearly to the need of my heart in stark and meaningful words. Listen to what he says in verse 21, and remember where we have been as he's unfolding this growing um, argument and encouragement to hope in the gospel and to see the way that our hearts keep reverting back to this kind of twisted slavery of the law, not simply looking to the law as a way to live with gratitude to God for what he's done for us in Christ, but to live by the law as our assurance as our hope, as our joy. And hear what he says. These are the words. These are striking. Uh, they have never left my memory since I very first read them. And I hope this will be true for you if this is your first time hearing them. He says in verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you hear the law? 
Now we know here that he is addressing Christians and specifically those who want to be under the law. This is one sort of family. This is one kind of person, one, one Christian. It might be you. And if it's not you today, it might be you tomorrow because this is regularly happening in our hearts. But listen again to what he says. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you hear the law? Do you listen to the exacting a burdensome power of the law? Do you hear what the law expects of you as someone who is committed to be justified underneath it? Which is that kind of daily in and out experience that we have where where sometimes we trust in Jesus by grace, but a lot of times we just go back to those rules. If I just keep the rules, that will just make me double sure that Jesus loves me. That will just even more give me the assurance that God will surely, he'll surely do good things for me. Not because he's good, not simply because he's gracious, not because of what Christ has done for me, but because of what I'm doing for him. To that voice, to that heart, to that worldview, to that Christian, Paul says these incredibly compassionate words, Don't you hear the law? You're not aware of what you're asking for in that kind of of law-centered mentality of the Christian life. You're underestimating the expectations and the rigid, strict, judging power of the law. You're not taking into account what that exactly requires of you because if you were, you would go across the street and live with the graces. If you could see more clearly what the law requires, you would give up all of this hoping in the law and you would return again and again and again forevermore to the gospel of grace. But here's what's so interesting is that this is a normal struggle in the Christian life. These are Christians, and he is saying, tell me, you who want to be under the law, that's an interesting thing to say. Hear those words. You who want to be under the law. No longer under the law. Christ has announced his good news to you. He has done all that is necessary. He has said it is finished. He has promised to to keep you forevermore, just as he promised from eternity past to redeem you and save you and bring you into his family, and yet still, rush, rush, still, you want to be under the law? You do. You want to be under the law. It's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? It's as though this wanting to be under the law, something about it, the the twisted allure in our hearts that somehow the law could do for me what Christ can't blinds me to the reality of what actually it would mean to live by the law. What would I really have to do? It's blinding this desire, this exhilaration over some self-justifying power and feeling that everything is all right because I do what I'm supposed to do. Do you hear that in your own heart sometimes? I'm sure that you do because we all do. But the weird thing is it's a little bit like the person, and I know there are a few in here, 
that love a storm. But you don't just like to sit in the living room and and lay on the couch and hear the storm. You like to go out and be in the storm. When the meteorologist comes on the television and warns you to go to the basement of your house, you're the kind of person that goes outside of your house. You go out into the storm, and not just under the porch, under the overhang so you can get back in. You go out into the neighborhood. That's the one moment you want to go for a walk because it's exhilarating to you. It's exhilarating to be in the midst of that storm, and yet that exhilaration, that desire has blinded you, me, from the danger from exactly what am I wanting? Uh, What am I asking for when I want to be in the storm? I want to experience the storm. I'm not estimating properly exactly what that means. This is a very similar experience that Paul is pointing out. And what he does here is he gives us an explanation by looking to the Old Testament and drawing to our minds two covenants. This is really helpful. This has to do with what we've heard already about the covenant of works or the covenant of law and the covenant of grace or the covenant of promise. Two covenants, two ways of relating to God, but only one ultimately saves and brings joy. Listen to what he says in verses 22 through 26. Capture this, and this sometimes can be hard to get our minds and hearts around, so absolutely make yourself a note that this week you will go back to this passage and spend some more time prayerfully reading over and over again, massaging it into your soul, into your mind, so that you can understand it. He says in verse 22, for it is written. This is his explanation. He's helping to clarify why is it such an error to want to live under the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. Those two sons are Isaac and Ishmael. And if you remember from the book of Genesis, Isaac was born by the free woman who is Sarah. There was a promise to Abraham and Sarah that God would give them a seed that would carry on their family down through redemptive history, leading to Jesus the Messiah, and he would ultimately fulfill the promise God had made to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless the whole world through his seed. And therefore, this promise was made, and yet they didn't see the promise being fulfilled. They had not seen Isaac. They couldn't have this promised son. But this promise had been made. And then there was also Ishmael. Ishmael was born of a slave woman or a servant named Hagar because Sarah, because the promise had not come in the time that they had expected, she suggested that perhaps they could fulfill the promise themselves by taking matters into their own hands and having Abraham father this seed or son through the servant person Hagar. And that's where Ishmael comes about. And so he says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. Now keep all of this in your mind as best you can because it's helping to clarify the two ways of living. One is slavery and one is freedom. He says in verse 23, but the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh. When you hear that word flesh, especially here, think about your own working, your own power and energy, trying to make it happen yourself. 
He says, while the one by the free woman, that's Isaac, was born through the promise. Verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively here for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Mount Sinai is the picture of the giving of the law and therefore he's pointing all of this out as a way to illustrate what it means to be a legalist, what it means to be someone who hopes in law-keeping as the way of assurance and hope and joy and a place in God's family. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. He says in verse 25, now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. So at the present time, his big concern is that there are those who have received the promise of the gospel and yet they are still living by hoping in the law. And then he draws this distinction in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. There's another Jerusalem. There's one that's free. There's a different way, another way of relating to God, another way of living as a Christian, and this is the way of the gospel. He's painting this out as two families, as two covenants, as two ways to live. This is what we're finding in our own hearts. We find that both of them, as Christians, we find that both of them are living side by side. There is part of us that because Christ has captured us and taken us and forgiven us and he's shown us grace and opened our eyes, that the gospel is ours. It's been deposited in our hearts. We know the truth of the gospel. We celebrate the gospel. We rejoice over what Jesus has done. And yet, right next door is this other way that remains. It's this, this, this remnant way of, of living by the law as a, a kind of fail-safe, or sometimes even more, our ultimate hope. And that's why we find that some people, or at some times, we want to live by the law. While other people, or at other times, we find ourselves wanting to live by the gospel. This is the distinction, and this is, I think, the biggest challenge of the Christian life, is to live purely before God by hoping in his covenant promises not by our own law-keeping, by hoping in what Christ has done, not what we have done. Well, what does Paul tell Christians like us, Christians like these, to do? He tells them to do one very clear thing, and a second that's similar. It's not quite as clear, but I think that it's, it's obvious. First, he says, listen to the law. You who want to be under the law, this is your legalistic self. This is the Lawtons living in your heart. When you see the Lawtons coming out of their home and living their lives in your heart, listen to the law. Remind yourself, he says, of what it means to live by the law. Remind yourself of what you're asking for and what kind of life you're giving your heart to. It is a life of slavery. You will never be able to fulfill the law. You will never be able to do enough things to assure yourself that everything is all right between you and God. You'll always fall short. That's why it's slavery. But there is another family. There's another voice. There's another word. And that word is gospel. 
And so he says as well, when you are feeling and seeing the Lawtons coming out of your heart into the street, listen also to the gospel. Remind yourself, preach to yourself, gather other people around you who hopefully you already have who are reminding you of the gospel because the gospel is the place of freedom. That's really the first application of our text this morning that we can carry with us even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's not let the Lord's Supper be a time where our minds just go idle and we wait around until the bread and the fruit of the vine shows up and then we we listen to the words again from, from the Bible and then we take it and then we go, let's focus in. Here's what you can focus on. Listen to the law and listen to the gospel this morning. And then continue to carry on this pattern. Listen to the law and listen to the gospel with preference every day moving forward. This means that what we need to do and where Paul is leading us is to choose to hope in the gospel. I think this is one of the reasons why the Christian life is rightly described as a constant pattern of repentance. It's a repentance of constantly coming back to where our true hope is found, which is in the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And we have every reason to do that. Paul is giving us reasons. He's giving us reasons in the words, you want to be under the law? Do you not hear the law? He's giving us reasons to do this by painting it out in such clear terms about Isaac and Ishmael and the difference between these two families and these two covenants and choosing this day which one we will serve. And now he's giving us another reason. And it's going to go back to one of those central things in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's amazing. He keeps coming back over and over again. And in fact, he's sort of taking us back to Philippians. When we spent all of that time trying to learn to be connoisseurs of happiness, why did we do that? Did we do that simply so that we could be more happy in daily life? We didn't. We did it for this moment. Because this is where we find again in clearer, more beautiful color, what is real happiness? He says in verse 27, for it is written, rejoice. There's that word again, be happy. There's that that repeated, most frequent command in the Bible. Be happy, rejoice. But why? Why are we to rejoice? He's quoting here Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. There are some in this room who have experienced this for a time or are experiencing it now. There are others who have experienced something similar, a longing of your heart for something good and right and true, something that we, we believe would glorify God for us to have it, and yet it, it's just not coming. It, it, we're not finding it. It's not showing up in our lives. But then there is this release when suddenly this good promised gift, which here is the gospel, has arrived as he is sort of painting it as as the ultimate seed, the child of promise delivered, rejoice, childless woman unable to give birth, burst into song and shout. What is he saying? He's saying that the covenant of promise, which is better and superior to the covenant of works, is the source of our ultimate happiness. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor, for the child of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. 
It's important to see that we're not only talking about how we live when we think about the difference between uh, living in the gospel, hoping in the gospel, or hoping in the law as we're distinguishing, but it has to do with the emotion and the affection of our hearts. It's not just about, again, that would just take us back to the law, wouldn't it? Why, why should you hope in the gospel? Because that's what good Christians do. Do you, want to, do, you, do you want to get the Christian life right? Then you should stop being such a legalist and start living by the gospel. That's just another law. That's just another way of living by a law. But rather, what is he pointing out here? There's something deeper and beautiful, and it is the rejoicing, shouting, singing joy of the covenant of promise. He's giving us a sense of what we can have more of in our lives the more that we understand this good news. We should not underestimate the power of this image, this childless woman unable to give birth, now rejoicing. Going from those who were trusting in the law, finding themselves in a place of ultimate sorrow, to now in a covenant of promise that leads us out into ultimate joy. Joy in the gospel, which gives life where life is lacking. You will never feel more dead in your Christian life than when you are trying to live by law. You will never have a greater lack for joy in the Christian life than when you are living by law. Because the law cannot ultimately, in that way, make you happy. It requires the gospel. It's the gospel that unlocks the joy of obedience. It's the gospel that unlocks the the power of living in gratitude to God by obeying his commands and and following his ways. It It must come through the gospel. The affection and emotion which should come out of us when we embrace the gospel daily is rejoicing. It doesn't mean we always have a smile on our face. It doesn't mean that we, we giggle and laugh when hard things happen. Obviously, we've, we have sort of covered that recently. That should be fresh in our minds. But it does mean that no matter what is going on in the details of our lives, the gospel upholds us with real joy and real happiness that helps us to reinterpret all of those things in light of a sovereign, wise, good, and happy God who is caring for us and has always been caring for us since the foundation of the world. This is the difference. The law, when hoped in, in the way that only the gospel should be hoped in, it produces burden and despair. The gospel when hoped in, in the way that only the gospel should be hoped in, produces freedom and happiness to those who want it. This is a beautiful exchange. It's a wonderful transition that needs to happen over and over again in our lives that we are coming back over and over to the gospel. You might be coming up on 
starting a new Bible reading plan, let me just encourage you. You should start that December 1st. Don't start on January 1st. You need to get ahead because you're going to fall behind. And don't feel bad about it. Just go ahead and get ahead. Start reading now. I want to suggest to you perhaps that you give your Bible reading some focus. Typically, every year about this time, we make the same encouragement. So you hear it again. As you read through the Bible over the coming year, don't just read it. Look. Look for something. This might be something that you could look for. How beautiful is the good news? You could, you could write that in the front of your Bible. How beautiful is the good news? That's what I want to understand. You see, that's what Paul is, is developing. He's, he's, he's trying to develop this because it's the antidote to wanting to live by the law. Why do you want to live by the law? You want to live, the legalist in you, the Lawton in you, wants to live by the law because you think that there is a promise of ultimate happiness in it. And there's not. Therefore, he is pointing us back again and again to the joy, the rejoicing, the shouting, the singing that comes through the gospel. He does this all over the place. I'll just show you one other place that might not be as obvious, but it's one of those places, and this is why we need to read our Bibles carefully like this. It will really help us. Is in Romans 10, 14 and 15. This might be more familiar to you. It's, the, it's actually a passage that reminds us of why we should be sharing the gospel and why we want to send missionaries around the world. But sometimes we lose the nuance, we lose the emotion or the affection in passages like this. But what does it say in Romans 10? How then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? There it is. We need to go around the world and, and preach the gospel. And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written. What does he say next? Do you remember? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Why should you take the good news around the world? Why should you take good news to your family? Why should you take it out to your neighborhood? Because there's a rule. Because it's a command. Is that why you should? Why should you do it? Because you, you simply want people to be saved. That's a wonderful thing. We want people to be saved. Is that why you should do it? Why should you take the gospel to people? Because it's beautiful. Because it is what colors this sinful world. This is what overturns the fall. This is what brings people out of darkness into light. It's the thing that rescues us from, from our, our, our legalism, our Lawtons, and brings us into the, the family of the graces. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the second application, I got to move. Time is ticking. Second application. You've heard this before. Don't let it wear out. Become as glad in the gospel as you possibly can. Make that your number one priority every morning when you wake up. I want to be as happy or glad in the gospel as I possibly can. I'm going to chase after it with all that I am. How do you do that? You must make your highest and most frequent thoughts gospel thoughts. 
You must make your, your highest and most frequent want gospel wants. The gospel becomes more and more central. And then finally, this last truth is immensely helpful to us. It is simply that the gospel promise is so rejoicing and it is so freeing because it drives out the law's burden. And it gives us power to drive out the burden ourselves with God's help as we see it continuing to kind of resurface in our hearts and our minds. Notice, finally, Paul reminds the Galatians of, again, this serious conflict at the heart of the Christian life. Verses 28 through 31, and then we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now you two, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're children of the gospel. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now there is this enmity between these two ways of living. He's referring back to Genesis when Ishmael was sort of, sort of bullying and oppressing Isaac. And therefore, what does the scripture say? Verse 30, he's quoting again, drive out the slave and her son for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. These two ways of living cannot be meshed together. You cannot be a gospel person and a legalist. They don't fit together. Therefore, one must be driven out in exchange for the other. He says, therefore, in verse 31, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. And therefore, every time you see this, this mentality about your Christian life that, that tempts you to revert back to law-keeping as your fail-safe, law-keeping as your assurance, law-keeping as your, your hope that God will keep you in the family and you'll stay in his good graces, weird thing to say, in his good graces, drive that out because it has no place that kind of thinking, that kind of wanting, that kind of believing, it doesn't have any place in a gospel-saturated life. And that's the final application this morning of this text. Cast out that natural legalism of your heart so that you will embrace again and again and again the freedom, spiritual freedom of the gospel. Those who approach this table cannot be self-righteous. We cannot come to this table because we deserve a place at the table. We come to the table of the Lord's Supper because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to invite those who are handing out the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward now and prepare to do just that. And I'm going to pray, and then uh, as I pray, they're going to begin taking the Lord's Supper around. And, and what I want you to do is I want you to think now. I want you to set your mind on the things that you've heard this morning. I, I want you to listen. Listen. You, we all have to learn to do this. Let's learn now. Listen to the law. Listen to what the law expects of you. Listen to what it would take for you to really impress God by doing things for him and then listen to the gospel. I want you and I want to hear 
the reverberating refrain of freedom in Christ so that it will magnify the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And perhaps the Lord's Supper will take on a meaning this morning for us that sometimes it doesn't have. I'm going to pray as they are taking the elements around and then we'll celebrate together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning on the heels of this important text as those who, many of us, feel this pull of law-keeping as our hope. We boast usually inwardly about the Christian things that we do or the ways that we keep the law when others aren't. We, we pat ourselves on the back because we don't talk like they do. We don't go the places that they do. We don't do the things that they do. And in that, we think that we have hope and that we have security. But you show us in your word that that is not the place of freedom. That is the place of slavery and the burden of the law. And so we pray this morning as we take this Lord's Supper that you would awaken in us a, a new appreciation for the good news and that we would become more articulate, more mindful, more thoughtful, more aware of our own desires and the things that we want and that we would prefer to live by the gospel over the law. We pray that you would help us with this by preaching yet again as we take the Lord's Supper, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. <music>